Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, a community of math teacher educators learning to teach math teachers better. I'm your I'm your co-host, Joel Amidon, and joining me is Jen Wolf. Jen, how are you? I'm feeling good. Glad to be here. Great. And Dusty Jones, how are you, Dusty? I'm doing great, Joel. Glad to be here. Excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. So today... Speaking of the conversation, we are talking with Dr. Nicole Joseph, who is Associate Professor of Mathematics Education at Vanderbilt University. We are talking to Dr. Joseph to share some of her experience and expertise expertise as a mathematics teacher educator and to discuss her research on Black women and girls, their identity development, and their experiences in mathematics and whiteness, white supremacy, and how it operates and shapes underrepresentation of Black women and girls in mathematics. She also, she also runs the Joseph's Mathematics Education Lab, and I'm curious about the work going on there as well. Welcome, Nicole. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Joel. It's so great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So can you take a minute to introduce yourself beyond what I already shared? What, what did we miss? Well, um, I'm a former teacher, math teacher, uh, born and raised in Seattle, Washington, Spent many years um, teaching like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So kind of upper elementary, middle school. I've taught a lot of different curriculum, math, skate, Turk, um, um, everyday math, you know, all a lot of different types of um, curriculum. And um, I also was a former math coach. Um, so there's a school in Federal Way called um, TAF Academy, um, and they hired me as their inaugural coach. They had a really interesting partnership with um, TAF, uh, which is a um, like a technical company that was started by Trish DeZyko, who is a former Microsoft person, Black woman, who basically retired and brought technology to our neighborhood. Um, and after like 20 years of successfully doing that, she started a partnership with Federal Way Public Schools and partnered with a school and um, brought in a lot of um, money for professional development um, there. And, you know, we did training on project-based learning um, through the Buck Institute. It was really pretty incredible. Um, and that school has been like a blue ribbon, you know, situation type of school since then. And um, there I was coaching math teachers who were actually teaching all the way up to, um, you know, algebra two um, and calculus even. So I've had a long run career in K-12 um, in having lots of conversations with teachers and math teachers and students and you know, the whole gamut. And that has really prepped me for higher ed and, you know, becoming a, becoming a, a professor and being a math teacher educator at this point. Yeah. I mean, just like, I, I mean, we, we think about the part of the reason to start this podcast, we want to have voices beyond, you know, higher ed voices. And we're thinking about teaching math teachers and thinking about your experience as a, as a math coach. And just, I'm just going through like the the curriculum that you had experience with as well. And then think problem-based learning and then just like this partnership, like, ah, oh, that's, that's amazing. Again, it's been that, a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. So, so, I mean, so that's how you got started teaching math, but I guess maybe what was the, what was the impetus to move from the, you know, the teaching to the teaching of math teachers or, or in your uh, math coach role? 
You know, I have always had the philosophy when I was a math teacher that you never work in a silo. And I used a lot of different strategies. For example, you know, going to senior people who had been teaching, you know, for a long time to try to get, you know, um, better understanding about students or the math curriculum or whatever. So I've always thought about like this need to engage in a community of practice. Now that is not the language that I used back then. Talking <laughs> yeah, about yeah. 1999 <laughs> and 2000. That's right. But um, I've always just also been like a critical uh, person to reflect on my practice. And again, I didn't have this language. I just knew that things that I was trying and teaching in my class, um, it didn't always work. And so I had to have conversations with my students, have conversations with other math teachers to try to figure out how do we do this? How do we develop assessments where, you know, informal assessments where we can have some um, shared understanding of or what, what do we want them to actually learn in grade six, for example. And so I say all that to say that I felt like I was like a budding researcher even then while being in the classroom in K-12 because I always had questions and I was always trying to become a better math teacher. And I have been guilty of things that people are guilty of now with, you know, um, scripted curriculum or, um, you know, focusing too much on procedures and, you know, the, basically the teaching that does not help. Yeah. <laughs> um, conceptual learning and, you know, wonderful, robust type of thinking. I was guilty of that too. Mm-hmm. But when I became conscious, that changed. Mm-hmm. And then I started like going to every professional development that I could that was available um, in Seattle, you know, the district at the time um, around, like I did the DMI modules, like I really just dived in. And then I thought, you know, after a few years um, and when I became a coach, I think I was maybe my second year in the PhD program at that point. But I, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to have a bigger impact. I wanted to be able to, First of all, develop into a strong researcher so that I so that I did I, so that I could ask these questions and really um, find real answers, but also to be able to disseminate that information and to support you know future math teachers that want to become you know outstanding and excellent for teaching African American kids because at that time all my kids were black, but I didn't really have the gender piece specifically that didn't really come until um, I became a you know a higher ed scholar. Yeah. And you talked about like when I, I think you used the words when I became conscious or whatever, like, was mm, there, yeah. you had like a moment, like, do you have like a moment, like a, a moment that you could point to like, Hey, like where your kind of eyes were opened or. Yeah. Looking at the kids data, looking at yeah. the kids work, <laughs> um, looking at the kids work and um, just conversations yeah. Like I, I, I mean that even now, like you have to work in it with people because if you are in a silo, you just, you're never going to get there. And working with people helps to build, not just like sharing of ideas and, you know, learning new things, but it builds in natural accountability. Right. Right. Um, and it brings it allows you to bring some of the complexities because I've been there where you don't have time to freaking go to the bathroom. So how do you have time to do mm-hmm. like a, a after school PD or to build 
in the, you know, the day, right. uh, common prep time or vertical, you know, planning. Like, I get it. But at yeah. the same time, that consciousness, like, it was just always about my kids. Yeah. And I had a goal to help all of my kids fall in love with mathematics. Not necessarily because, you know, it's just this really cool idea, but I really wanted them to see the power of what this tool could actually do and helping them to understand their own lives, things that they cared about, problems that they cared about that were not in my textbook, but real issues that they were dealing with. And I just know that, you know, one of the ways to do that is to help students you know, really see themselves in the curriculum to help the kids understand that, first of all, you can do this, you know, and I'm battling four to five years of prior teachers that have told these kids that they can't do math. Um, And so I did a lot of things from implementing math journals to portfolios. Like my kids had a lot of different ways to express and show their ways of knowing in math. And when I tell you, I, I I didn't have the PhD then. I just listened and talked a lot and, and just read a lot and tried to figure stuff out, you know, that would help my kids. It's always been about them and it will always be about them. So, so what is you the... you feel be- that oh, in developing, sorry, like, oh, sorry, yeah, that, that consciousness that it just empowered you more to focus on students not necessarily before the math, but yeah, before the math, like building that trust and relationships and thinking about what are the ways that they come to know the mathematics just empowered you or like, I don't know, that just sounds pretty powerful. Yeah. That, I mean, I just, I feel like that's the work. This is, you know, this is one of the things that Professor Leva, who's my colleague here at Vanderbilt, I know you guys know him. Oh, wonderful. You know, he's trying to help these college math professors like understand that their social issues and mathematics, like they belong together. And <laughs> you have to stop saying that math is neutral and objective and math is math and No, because it's like completely connected to who we are, our identities, um, you know, our recognition, our worth, our value, like those things are connected, you know. And so in my Interrogating Whiteness book, I have in the beginning a graphic where I have tried to show what I've called the STEM system. But basically what that means is that, you know, we have people who get undergraduate degrees or advanced degrees in mathematics, they're there, they're trained in the content, right? They're seldom ever trained around pedagogy. So then if they decide that they want to come and be a teacher, secondary, right? Then they're bringing all of the values and the things that they have gotten from the math department, which is to, you know, understand your content. And that's pretty much it. There's none of the other discussions about issues. So then when they come to the, to the secondary ed program to become a math teacher, there's oftentimes a lot that we have to unpack and work through because they oftentimes won't see those issues. Sometimes they do, you know, but uh, sometimes they don't. And they really come thinking that, well, what in the world does math got to do with, you know, somebody's identity or, you know what I'm saying? And so then if we can't get it in the teacher education program, they become a teacher 
And then they go into our public school system or our just our school system. And then they're going to perpetuate, essentially. And I think this is, you know, these are some of the things that shape then the student experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a system of perpetuation that if we don't interrogate or like, like infiltrate or whatever word you want to use, then we're actually perpetuating that as well. And when I say we, I'm talking about math teacher, educators, people that are, that are engaged with even in-service math teachers, you know, and all of us have an aspect of the work to do. Um, no one gets off the hook as far as I'm concerned. Like all of us got work to do, you know, to mm -hmm. help um, each other. And this is, again, is why I go back to this is not work you need to be doing in isolation. You need to consistently be in a community of practice be it formal at your school or informal, you know, with the folks that are on Twitter. You know, there's an mm -hmm. anti-racist like conference that around mathematics. I mean, there's like a lot of ways from when I first started teaching in 1999 that people can be super connected and really get support. And that's those are some of the ways to elevate your consciousness, I think, when you are not in your own silo. Nice. What is the best advice you received when you started teaching math teachers? The best advice that I received when I started teaching math yeah, teachers? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just believe in the... Um, like, I believe that everyone can do this work if they have the right what I have often called dispositions. I think equity work, you need the right disposition. So you can be someone who, you know, say, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I, I, I believe all of my students can learn and those kinds of things. But if it is not like a part of your, you know, I don't want y'all to get deep, but like spirit, like if it's just not a part of who you yeah. are, right. then it's not going to come out. Nope. In all of the practices that you do, how you interact with your students, how you teach, um, you know, all of those things. And to me, the best advice is how can we develop those dispositions for math teachers as they begin to take up the mantle, you know, if you will, of teaching young people how to, you know, fall in love with mathematics. That's going to always be my line. I want everybody to fall in love with mathematics for whatever that reason is. And I just know marginalized communities have yet to get that experience realized on like a critical mass. We know individual people do it, but I want whole school system. You know, I want like thousands, you know, of marginalized kids, black girls, you know, to be able to see what that feels like, you mm. know, because it's very powerful when you, um, you know, see the, um, see how math is just like amazing and awesome, <laughs> you know, and, and I try to, you know, tell people how amazing math is, but then sometimes our systems, you know, just sort of like, it's like we stomp it out of, you know, we stomp it out of our kids because we're 
we're so into the scripted curriculum. We got to take the test. I mean, it's hard. Um, but informal learning spaces are probably going to be the place where we are going to be able to really develop some of this love of mathematics. Do you think those informal spaces are ones where people can begin to bring their whole selves to the space where schools are just so confining and can kind of just be very narrow on who's smart and who's not and who gets access and who doesn't that like, there are just spaces outside in these informal spaces where, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you can breathe. You don't have to pretend. I don't have to leave certain parts of my identity at the door. Absolutely, Jennifer. Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, there's a little bit of research and I'm just kind of going in that way a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, there's an article by um, a researcher last name Jones. It's an old study, 2003. And um, it's about a hybrid math club. So essentially what this researcher did was follow this little third grade black girl named Patty through like three contexts, the classroom, the relationship with her mom, and then this hybrid uh, math club that the researcher actually put together as a result of what she was seeing in uh, the experiences of Patty, who was in a class and, you know, her teacher was describing her as like big and loud and always in the way. And it was about her clothes. It was about her size. It was never about like, who is she as a math learner? And so um, the researcher started this math club and she called it hybrid because it was a place where Patty was able to be her happy go lucky self while also like engaging in these incredible uh, math games. Um, there's different math games she talked about and Patty just like lit up and was like doing crazy logic puzzles and you know what I mean? Because she was able to like fully be who she was without trying to um, take on a particular identity that gets knighted, if you will, or, you know, in our, in our regular school setting. So mm. yeah, it, it's informal learning spaces. Are, you know, I, I believe that's going to be the way of the future um, for marginalized kids um, to be able to shine, if you will, in mathematics. It uh, That sounds great. I really like this idea of this informal learning spaces and, and how we can try to try not formalize them, but try to, you know, uh, get those activated throughout, uh, throughout places so students can have access to that. And some other phrase that you mentioned earlier got me thinking, uh, you said to, help you wanted to help your students see themselves in the in the curriculum um and, and so maybe that's moving out of the informal space into a formal space where there might be a curriculum or maybe not but uh can you can you share a little bit more about some some successful ways you you've helped students see themselves in the curriculum well when i when i say that i think of curriculum as something super broad okay not not just um you know, the teacher's manual or the okay. student manual. Yeah. I see curriculum as whatever the big ideas or um, experiences, mm -hmm. tools that you want to use in order to, you know, help support students become, you know, more engaged in mathematics. And so 
you can see naturally if, if I'm if I'm working from that type of definition, then I think it's a little bit easier to help students to see themselves mm-hmm. yeah. um, like in the curriculum. So like, that like, that could be through a product mm-hmm. that could be through a process of how mm-hmm. they are, you know, engaging with math talk or whatever. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah. interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's I'm great. thinking about it more broadly. That's great. Well, that's I mean, anything we can do to help students kind of interact and like you I like your phrase, fall in love with math. <laughs> I mean, you when you're going to develop a relationship with a person, you've got to spend time with them. Yes. You've got to you've got to see how that interplay goes. The same same goes with mathematics, I think. Yeah. 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 And and I, and let me just say for the record, you know, I'm not talking about you know, some people think when you say see themselves in the curriculum or uh, relevance or whatever, that we're just changing names and math right. problems. Like, like that's we don't. Just that's not what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, um, I've written about this. You know, Danny Martin. Y'all know who Danny Martin is. He, mm-hmm. you know, he's like. We, we we need to tear down the whole system. Refusal because this is not working. And I am like right. Beside him in that moment, I am also inside a broken system. And I think that's like the teacher part of me that never wants to give up because kids show up on Monday. So it's like I also want to work in the space of a broken system to help teachers think about, all right, the system is whack. Ain't nothing we can really do about that in a lot of ways. But what you can do is what is actually happening in your classroom. So I'm not even necessarily promoting that, you know, there's like a new math that has to happen in order for black girls to become strong mathematical thinkers. That's not that's not my lane. I wouldn't even know what to do. I'm like, you know, I was trained on probably the same stuff y'all was trained on, you know. Algebra, geometry, algebra two, like, you know what I'm saying? But I'm saying even with the the curriculum that we have, and let me not say the curriculum, the um, the, um, uh, math topics or, you know, how we organize schools around like these ideas that even starting that with the basic, there are ways to integrate that with notions of like, um, identity and consciousness and all of those things while you're still using this, you know, regular curriculum, if you will. And that's what I have been seeing for Black girls in my work is that they're not even getting access to like robust learning instruction or ambitious learning instruction or, you know, math instruction. They're still, you know, experiencing Worksheets, which is why I like tweet about that. I'm like, stop using worksheets as the main learning activity. So there might be a moment when you need to use a worksheet. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is like the main way that, you know, the kids are learning, um, like that's not okay. And and black girls feel like their intellect is erased or, you know, that they're not being challenged. They're like, Lord, you know, can we go out and play a game or, you know, can we do something that's more active? And, you know, in the small studies that I've done, that's their experience. And so you can see the bar is kind of low, right? So I'm trying to like, how do we level up 
with the curriculum that you have, with also these other notions around like, what does it mean to be to be a black girl? What is black girlhood? How does that change the space in the classroom when you're learning mathematics? So, you know, I feel like, um, you know, it can be a lot of work, but I'm not even trying to say get new math. I'm like, use the stuff <laughs> that you have mm-hmm. and then let's level it up. To some real rigor, you know, so the girls can, um, you know, have different opportunities. Well, I'm going to switch some things up, uh, the questions up a little bit, because I think it feels like we're rolling here. So um, in your bio, uh, there's you talk about uh, two different lines of inquiry, um, black women. And, and we've already we've, <laughs> we could we could we've touched on them, but a black women and girls and their experiences in mathematics and B whiteness and white supremacy and how it operates and shapes underrepresentation of black women and girls in mathematics. So, you know, we position this podcast towards beginning math teacher educators are like, well, what does this mean to do this thing? I know how to teach math, but now I'm teaching math teachers. So forget for, so for beginning math teacher educators, what would you want MTEs to know as they step into those roles for teaching math teachers. And so what, what of your work or other work would you point them in order to learn more? So I definitely will be recommending my book. I have a whole chapter yeah, yeah, yeah. on, um, you know, what does transformative teaching for black girls like looks like. So it's kind of two things. One, you know, new math, they need to understand like how has math as a, um, you know, as a discipline, but also like the ways in which we have come to understand what does it mean to even teach mathematics and learn mathematics? Like they have to interrogate those things in terms of um, who has actually benefited mm-hmm. from that type of pedagogy or whatever that is. And there's a lot of resources at this point where people can talk about how the ways that we have taught and all this kind of thing, how it leaves leaves out really a lot of people, right? Yeah. Except for folks that kind of have that are who's um, you know, socioeconomic and values and social capital and all that kind of stuff is in alignment. Cracking the Code is a really great paper they should read by Zeffenbergen, uh, because she literally walks through like test exams and and even questions in like math curriculum, how that is aligned with a particular type of social capital. And if people's social capital is not there, um, we judge and we say that you're bad, you're not smart, but she says, no, 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 we need to change that. So anyway, um, understanding how math has come to be constructed and that it has come to be constructed in in the form of whiteness and white supremacy. Um, And, you know, when I talk to math departments, you know, I don't go in there telling them that they're white supremacists. I just (laughs) look at, I say, let's walk down the hall. Let's just look at the pictures that are up on the wall. You know, who do you see? Can you describe them? Who are they? What are their math contributions? Like, where are they from? I ask a lot of questions and the aha moments come on their faces, right? Um, And I think uh, new math teachers have to understand that when I say whiteness and white supremacy, I am not talking about like Ku Klux Klan in the woods. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about everyday choices, decisions that we make as math teachers that are perpetuating a particular type of pathway that has been constructed since day one 
in alignment with white values. And if we're not disrupting that, we're perpetuating that. Mm, So I have to help people understand that when you, you know, do certain things, you're perpetuating. And I started this podcast at the beginning to say, I have been guilty too, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why you have to interrogate. So I think one, understanding how math has been come to be constructed and be able to like really unpack that and, um, and, and talk about, so like, what are some going to, what are going to be some things that I'm going to try to do to disrupt that? We don't expect them to dismantle this system because it's too old and they're not going to do that. But if they can just disrupt something and have the marbles flow in a different type of distribution, that is like, good work and just to keep doing that. I think the second thing is um you know so for me it's a, it's about black girls. So, you know, I want people to really get to know like what is black girlhood. And if you don't really have time to like, you know, read stuff, although nowadays there's just there's a lot of good materials that's free, that's legit, that's online, right? But um, the black girls that are in your class, you know, like go on a listening tour, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and um, and and see, you know, what are their dreams? What are they talking about? Like, um, you know, that will give a lot of help, I think, to um, teachers. But then again, if you're in a silo, that could be something that you start thinking through like a deficit lens. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a community of practice where, you know, maybe the, maybe it's just about equity broadly and you guys are trying to think together about like how to, how to not come from deficit, deficit frames, maybe there's an opportunity for you to like bring back some things to kind of have a conversation And then I tell students all the time, I mean, teachers all the time, pre-service teachers and in-service teachers, bring your students into the problem-solving process. There is no reason why you should be banging your head, scratching your head when you have the horses in your class. So ask your students that might be struggling, like, What is it that you do understand? How do you know? What is getting in the way of you Mm -hmm. understanding how to do this? And these were this, when I told you I used a lot of math journals, I used a lot of those questions in my math journal. And then we do like these little conferences and stuff like that. And I tell people all the time, we're not talking about no two hours. You know, it's like a two or three minute conversation. But once it becomes routine, you can get through your kids quicker. You know what I'm saying? And then if you're trying to do a little pilot of like really just like your kids that are super on the struggle bus, you're generally not talking about 110 kids. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You might be talking about 30. This is if you're secondary, right? Mm -hmm. But um, so those are, you know, those are things that I think that, you know, new math teachers need to think about. Like, you know, who decided that this was going to be the, you know, who decided that we were going to teach math like this? Like, really think about who made that decision and whose values does, do those decisions actually reflect? And how have those decisions worked for the majority of the kids that are in our schools nowadays? You know, it, does, it doesn't. 
Yeah. But I think that that's important to, to help them figure out that we talking about everyday decisions and things like that. We, we're not talking about the crazy stuff with hoods and all that. That's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, like bringing them into the conversation shows that you trust their, that they know the ways of things that will work for them or not. And then you're in conversation with them. And if you're in conversation with them, that gets back to your point of like, do they believe my spirit in the things yeah. that I'm talking about? Like, am I walking the walk, right? And here you are trying to understand it. And in a way, check the assumptions you have about Black girls and other marginalized folks in your classroom just by asking. Just right? by asking. Just by asking and involving them in the process. I love that. That's beautiful. Well, and just think of this. I mean, the simplicity, but like the thing that it hasn't been seen is like just talking to teachers and saying like, have you have you asked your students one what they think and then worked hard to understand their thinking in order to and, and then help again like you said help engage them in the process of problem solving versus like no 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 regurgitate this you yeah. know just you know keep doing because yeah. again like I I saw the same thing like when I was and when I was challenged to do a different type of teaching it was that was a struggle but then like seeing the the brilliance of students coming out that's like addicting too and like once it you start is. getting those conversations on like and exposing the brilliance of your students like man that, that's like you just you get hooked on it and so then what then like you're saying interrogating your practice and like okay well what's getting in the way uh of you you know seeing that from from students and right and like then now how do we focus in and and, and do the good work you know uh, and it does require that teachers um, are willing to relinquish power. If you're not willing to relinquish power, this type of work is, is just going to be challenging for you all the time. And as much as I am an advocate of like, you know, all of the research and scholarship that we've kind of done in like the critical math education space, sometimes I feel like we just make it so deep and extra that people are overwhelmed. You know what I'm saying? You know, um, I, I was trained on, you know, CGI and, you know, like, but I had to figure out a way to be able to, like, ask some questions that were just, like, real, that would get to the heart of my kids um, and still kind of get similar information without, like, going through this D protocol. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I, I'm I'm a proponent, you know, of, of doing those types of things. But people, teachers need to know their students. I went through national board certification. Pillar number one is know your students. Mm -hmm. And that also provides the flexibility of different contexts. You're in a rural mm -hmm. school, you're in a suburban school, you're in a, you know, whatever your school, private school, that provides you to bring the context and to be flexible with tools and strategies and, you know, learning activities and things that work for who? your kids mm -hmm. and clearly there are like larger like themes or whatever you know such as get to know your students but the way that actually plays out and how that looks can be very different for different math classrooms and it provides a level of flexibility that I think is you know really important because folks be like oh my god you know that won't work in my class or you know um those types of things and so um, I, I just think this is work we can't do alone. We have to support each other and we have to be willing to open up our, I used to call it when I was a coach, deprivatizing 
the practice. Like you have to deprivatize your teaching practice in mathematics um, to like really be able to grow um, and and get better um, and make sure that truly all of your students are, you know, engaging in rigorous mathematics and, you know, doing what they need to do to pass the tests and the rest of the, the silliness that's a part of our system. <laughs> that's right. Right. So it sounds like, I mean, you talk about, you know, creating those, you know, informal spaces for kids to do mathematics, but then also thinking about like developing that community within a classroom, develop a community between teachers and, and figuring out how to, how to do this sort of work. Well, it sounds like with the jo- Joseph's mathematics education lab, you've, you've did maybe creating some community there. Like I'm curious about, it. I, I, you know, I saw the webpage and I looked about it. What, so what is the Joseph's math education lab and what, what goes on? What goes on there? Thanks, Joel. Um, so the, the, um, the lab actually just sort of started with, you know, like a few graduate students, you know, when I first got to Vanderbilt that just kind of wanted to work with me on the projects. So it's not like I went out and found funding and started a lab. It just organically just kind of happened. And, um, the, they were, you know, women of color. So right now there's 15 women of color in the, in the lab, but I have had, um, white students participate in the lab. So I think one of the things that makes Jamel different um, is one, we're really trying to push back on like socially constructed understandings of what labs do, social science labs. So we do things like open up with um, not just wellness checks, but we also do something called grounding where um, we share the load of bringing podcasts or short videos or texts things that are rooted in intersectionality, Black feminist epistemologies, basically like theoretical understandings and traditions um, because the lab is designed to train undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs. It's super intergenerational um, on humanizing research, right? And centering um, marginalized people's um, uh, and communities like experiences and and how do we how do we do that in ways that it that's humanizing how are we doing it in ways that are divesting from you know traditional research that oftentimes positions um, communities of color in negative ways um, so that grounding has um, been something that's been very powerful I am working right now with lab members to um, analyze data because we are actually trying to study ourselves to see if we can elevate certain, you know, practices or whatever it is that that's really working to support, um, you know, a more humanistic experience. And then also just like the self, these are, you know, students that are in higher ed, we know that higher ed spaces can be very draining, um, isolating, uh, you know how it is. And so where I'm trying to create a space where women of color can feel like they can just be. There's another part of um, that we um, um, do, it's called um, questions without penalty. So a lot of times, you know, especially doctoral students, like, there's like a certain level of like imposter syndrome where people feel like, oh, my God, you know, I, yeah. I should probably right. know what a literature review is or, you know what I'm saying? And so we have like agreements and norms that this is a space for any question to be asked without being penalized or judged. 
Um, and that has also proven to be like very helpful, I think, just based off anecdotal data from, you know, the lab members. And then, of course, we share work. Um, you know, yeah. people are working on a variety of different projects. Uh, they ha- there Some people are working on projects that are mine, but they also have the freedom to bring their own projects um, to the lab to get support. We have a whole Google shared folder of like uh, people who have like won grants, like their proposals, um, fellowships, Ford, Spencer. We know Ford's about to be done. Yeah. But, um, you know, we are gathering materials to support these women that are in graduate programs that, you know, having that are having to publish and do conferences and, you know, all the things um, so that. Um, they can be successful. And we're really deprivatizing. We are demystifying, you know, this this idea called, you know, higher ed, faculty life. Um, and it's really just been amazing to just spend time with these amazing people. I also do something called Scholar Tees, where I just invite like great scholars from around the globe to come and just talk with us. 30 minutes, I tell them no prep. Just come and be yourself, share your experience, give us nuggets of wisdom as we're trying to make it through these PhD programs and master's programs. Um, Yeah. And then there's, of course, a lot of mentoring. So this is one of the reasons why it doesn't feel like a lot on me, because I'm building the capacity of these women who, when we get new folks or when they graduate, they're actually they're they've been built up. So now they're like nodes, if you will, and they mm-hmm. are going out to, you know, do this same sort of thing. Because I told them, you know, we we have to support each other in this work. Um, um, you know, because of research with, you know, there's not a lot of professors, black women professors, full black women professors, all those kinds of things. So the lab is very um there's a lot of different pieces to it that I that I from research, my own research, have integrated while we are also learning and training, you know, how to use and Nova and how to, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah. we're still doing, you know, understanding. I have a residential statistician who she's getting her PhD in statistics. You know what I'm saying? So she's yeah, yeah. there to kind of help as the resident. So we're still we're still doing those things because I'm not like naive in terms of like where I'm at Vanderbilt and the training that needs to happen. I'm just also infiltrating and integrating these other humanistic, robust things that are a part of like um, um, supporting, you know, women of color in higher ed. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I just thinking about like the, the, you know, and there might be some listeners out there thinking about like the, the different things that they had access to if they're in higher ed, like the things that they had access to and like basically saying like, Hey, we're going to make sure that everyone in this space has access to these things that might've happened happenstance otherwise, but like if, or, or might not have. Right. And like, so making sure like, Hey, we're going to there, here's this group and we're going to put it together to make sure that people have access to these things. Even like a statistician, that's, that's, that's even, that's better. That's great. Yeah. We, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I've just feel like I've been very blessed to have a very, um, like my, my, my pathway has had a lot of different 
context. And the other thing is that, you know, I've tried to remain like humble in this space of higher ed, because as you all know, you know, it's a sp- if you're doing well, it's a space where people are going to like elevate you and, you know, tell you you're all that and a bag of chips mm-hmm. and those types of things. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I do think, though, you have to have a particular type of disposition to keep that in check, mm-hmm. because otherwise you can actually <laughs> begin to engage in, um, you know, practices that are actually perpetuating harm on other people. And this is what Paulo Freire was talking about, that the oppressor, once you get your level of like, you know, consciousness and freedom, you got to be careful because if you're not careful, you can actually turn around and be doing the exact same things. And so try to also uh, weave that through line um, in the work in the lab as well. um, So that folks understand, you know, you're going to just because you're a student at Vanderbilt, there's going to be some doors that are going to be open. But I need you to know that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a privileged position and you need to stay humble and you need to make sure you pay it forward mm-hmm. um, so that the women that are coming behind you will, you know, will get those same uh, opportunities. Awesome. So and I want to honor your time, but it, I mean, I think we've heard some some great messages with this next question, but I just want to give you an opportunity to answer it. Uh, so setting boundaries and priorities in order to get the right things done and still enjoy your life. I mean, I think one message we've heard is like, Hey, don't, we're not doing this stuff alone. Let's, we're going to do things together. Um, right. Anything else you'd, you'd add to that, Nicole? Yeah. I just love to smile and laugh and be silly. This is one of the reasons why, you know, when I'm talking to these black girls and they say like, well, gee, we want to, you know, while we're finding the line of best fit, we want to also just crack some jokes or we just want to, <laughs> right. that is just, that's me. And, mm-hmm. you know, life is already hard. So mm-hmm. it's like, I'm trying to find the joyous moments um, and just like try to share that with other people. Even when I have to have like difficult or, you know, co- I call them courageous conversations, you know, yeah. um, because we're all learning. And yeah. no one has the answer because <laughs> if they did, we probably wouldn't be here. Right. Right. But um, and I and I do things like share, t- you know, spend time with my family and uh, rest and I work out and I, you know, I, I do all those things. But laughter is really important to me. And yeah. just like being silly is really important because I'm always thinking so hard and writing and, you know, so I, that's the kind of outlet. Yeah. That I I love um, being around people and just enjoying them and and having a good time and cracking up about stuff. That's right. (laughs) Well, it's so important to share that joy and have it come out too, right? Because I think sometimes we focus on so many of the horrible things that are happening. And I'm like, I'm not saying don't address those, but it's just like, okay, where is that joy? And how are we showing that joy and that we have the capacity for that joy, right? Because I think often when you're trying to humanize that sometimes you're looked at, and I'm sure in all the research that you had that you're you don't have feelings or you're not human because right. all we do are we engage in these types of narratives that don't highlight that joy. Right? That's not what we see. And that yeah. goes back to the whole, like, what have we internalized of what it means for black girlhood? Yeah. What is that? What does that look like? What does it sound like? What does that mean? And if I have a particular notion of what that is, it's not just, I have it, but I will act on it. That's and right. I got to keep like, what am I going to, you know? So I, I, I love your joy and I love that you share your joy. Yes. yes, you know, we got hard work to do. That's right. Yes. 
Um, so Nicole, I just want to give you an opportunity to share anything, uh, to promote. I know, I, I know I just looked at the making black girls count in math education, uh, your book, a black feminist vision for transformative teaching. So promote that. What else, what else we got on out there? Well, we have that book that's going to be, they said December 10th, uh, but you can pre-order. I'm really super excited about that book, uh, because I think that teachers are going to see themselves like they're going to be able to relate. So it's not just like a heavy theoretical book. No one has time for that when you're trying to make real, you know, changes and things like that. But um, I also have a new project uh, called Measuring Inclusive Constructs of Math Identity or MICME that was recently funded through Assessment for Good and the AirDef parent company. And essentially I am... Uh, trying to design my own measure of uh, mathematics identity. So, you know, math identity is something very important to me. Um, It is important for Black girls to develop. And so I was funded to co-design this um, measure with Black girls who are in the um, Shelby County School District between ages 8 through 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been into the world of psychometrics. I am partnering my co- my co-PI as a statistician, psychometrician. Um, but the excitement that is happening with doing these cognitive interviews with these Black girls, learning a little bit more of their stories and being able to um, validate um, this survey normed on them. Right. Um, and it's going to be a three factor model, meaning that there will be, um, math identity will be a part of it. And the, and the two additional theoretical pieces that I'm bringing are intersectionality barriers and intersectionality assets. So what are those assets that black girls are actually bringing to the math learning space that often get obscured because, you know, teachers and peers and everybody are focused on, um, you know, stereotypes or things that um, that have nothing to do with learning math, but everything to do with like the behaviors and the stereotypes and things like that. And so um, teachers will be able to act and caregivers like I'm not even playing like I want granny to be <laughs> able to read this measure and understand what can we do as a family to decrease these barriers, to increase her assets, to help her have a stronger math identity. Nice. So um, it's a lot of fun. It will be ready to go by uh, June of 2023. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for uh, spending some time with us. This has been a pleasure. And uh, thanks again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you're able to take action on something that you just heard and interact with other math teacher educators. Also, did you know that AMTE has another podcast, the Mathematics Teacher Educator Podcast, the MTE podcast that accompanies the latest edition of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal and has authors discuss the work they have submitted for publication to the journal. So you can find a link for that uh, in the show notes for this episode, along with all the other great things we mentioned. So... Thank you.